I am an adversary to my fans. I hate the word fans. To my readers, I'm their adversary. I'm not there to make them feel good. I'm not there to win their approbation. I don't give a damn whether they love me. What I want is for the work to go at them and savage them. I want my work to come at them and attack them. I want my work to leave them with some, with some feeling that they have been through an experience. That's what I want. When someone buys your book, that's what they get for the money. They don't get a piece of you. That was the late, great, multi-genre author Harlan Ellison. And this is Against Everyone with Connor Abib. So Harlan Ellison there is talking about why the relationship between the artist and the audience isn't necessarily one of care. Um, in fact, <laughs> he wants to scare the audience, to savage them, to brutalize them, to almost punish, to terrify, and to shock. And in some ways, I couldn't agree more. Horror, which is the topic of the series of episodes we're in right now, for a long time has challenged the idea that the best experience for us as readers or viewers is to learn a lesson or to feel comforted or to feel hope. Horror offers a different sort of experience because it is a different sort of art. This episode with weird horror writers Nathan Ballingrud and Sarah Gran is the second in a series of episodes on horror celebrating the release of my novel Hawk Mountain in paperback. In this series, I'll be talking with creators from this genre, my favorite genre. There are a few genres that have inspired such a furor of regulation, stigma, and anger. Horror is regulated by governments. It's been the topic of moralistic examinations and moral panics. It's been blamed for disintegrating societies, violence, and more. Horror itself horrifies. And when horror does become accepted, at best it is said by critics to transcend the genre. And all that really means is that it's just transcending the stigma that critics have reasserted when they're saying it's transcended it. But I also don't want to talk about horror as being merely beleaguered. The fact is, it's also wildly popular. Even a terrible horror movie can make lots of money, and the most consistently best-selling author of all time, Stephen King, is a horror writer. So what does that mean? Across these episodes, I'm talking about horror in its many forms. Cosmic horror, body horror, suburban horror, monster horror, possession horror, and more. This is partially inspired by the 1990 Horror Cafe on BBC Two, which featured Clive Barker, John Carpenter, Roger Corman, Lisa Tuttle, Ramsey Campbell, and Peter Atkins. Whoa, <laughs> what a discussion. This was referred to me by J.F. Martell, who is the co-host of the Weird Studies podcast. Inspired by that, I'm going to be talking with horror writers mostly in pairs. Although the first episode of this series was with Matt Carden, I felt like we had a lot of ground to cover just talking about cosmic horror and personal horror, so we talked one-on-one. -on -one. Um, most of these discussions will be me with two authors and asking big, deep questions about horror together and seeing what paths those questions lead us down. You don't have to know much horror or even like horror to follow along with these episodes because I believe that horror has so much to offer in terms of learning about being human. And of course, maybe it doesn't have to offer anything at all. As a writer of the horrific myself, I wanted to talk with other creators um, about the inner navigation of exploring <laughs> cruelty, 
fear, fantastic and upsetting violence. It's not just that I want to talk about the moral navigation of these images, because after all, a lot of these images and themes exist in the sacred scriptures that form our idea's morality. I wanted to also talk about the impulse to move towards those images and the differing ways in which authors and other artists walk through that inner landscape and figure out what to share, what to leave behind, and what it could do. To talk about all this, I asked two masters on. <laughs> Sarah Gran, the author of the horror classic Come Closer, and more recently the erotic occult detective Page Turner, the book of the most precious substance, and Nathan Ballingrud, who is the author of one of the greatest collections of short horror fiction ever, North American Lake Monsters, and he also wrote a story which inspired the film Wounds. His most recent book is The Strange, which is an adventure book on Mars that does this remarkable, seemingly impossible work of balancing science fiction, mystery, western, and horror. Both Sarah and Nathan write across genres and for multiple mediums, film, TV, audible stories, and of course novels and short stories. We talk about the pleasure of creating horror and of reading it. We also talk about the fact that horror fiction rarely actually scares us as opposed to horror films. Instead, it upsets us and it disturbs us. But when it does scare us, how does that work? We talk about the connection between horror and sex. Um, for instance, I <laughs> say that, look, horror movies and porn are the two kinds of movies that you talk to the screen, but with a horror film, you say, don't go in there, and with porn, you say the opposite. <laughs> what does that mean? It, I mean, it's a quip, you know, it's a kind of glib thing to say, but I think there's some depth there, and we try to pull that apart. We talk about the dream logic of the supernatural and how much of what we depict is reflective of reality, not just the dark imagination, but of supernaturalism and the strange. There's so much more. There's shout outs to Clive Barker, a bunch of filmmaking Davids, David Slade, David Schmoller, David Lynch. We talk about horror works like Maeve Fly, The Pit, Midnight Mass, and more. I'm going over all this because it's a good long episode and I'm so excited that I get to have a podcast like this where I'm not asking the same snappy silly um, meme algorithm questions but that actually we can go down whatever avenues we want to in conversation and really go there and bring you all along all the episodes of this show are free and I don't have any sponsors helping because do I really want sponsors <laughs> for this show that wanders down all these crazy avenues like the streets of Venice and don't look now? I want to treat this kind of thing seriously and also have fun while I'm doing it, but take it seriously and really offer something new in podcast conversations to people. And so for me, the best way to fund that and to keep it going is through connection with the listeners. And I do that through Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib is where you can go to support the show. You can give a monthly donation for as little or as much as you want, or you can use the increasingly popular annual uh, donation option where you just pay one 
lump support pledge amount. So patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. There are other ways to support the show, and I appreciate all of those as well. Giving a warm review on Apple Podcasts and five-star ratings and subscribing, also buying my novel, Hawk Mountain, and also just talking about it and sharing uh, the ideas that come up uh, when you listen to it with other people. But the direct way, <laughs> that connected way um, that I see immediately and I really feel the presence of your listening and appreciation is patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Thank you for supporting the show in all the ways that you do and for listening to it. Okay, that's it. Uh, I'm so excited for this second episode in the series on horror, uh, this time with Nathan Malingrud and Sarah Grand. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I'm very excited to be talking with you both, Nathan Ballingrud and Sarah Grant. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, okay, so I was trying to think about where to start this conversation, and I'm sure we will talk about cross-genre stuff, but um, one of the ways in which your works both do something that is kind of cross genre is the way that they use time. And so I think that that's where I want to start. Um, so I have in mind, Sarah, with your work, de- detectives, and even a kind of uh, less, less so maybe with um, the book of the most precious substance, but detective characters, um, sleuths, investigators, who have a kind of hard-boiled aspect. So there's this sort of past trope coming into the present. And then, you know, Nathan, in your most recent novel, this or your most recent book, The Strange, the there's a retro future Mars um, 1930s thing blending with horror. And, <clears throat> and then we can just, you know, also just talking about monsters, which often feel... Uh, past bound something ancient disrupting the flow of life so i wanted to talk about that um we'll talk about the past and the future and the ways that they intersect with um horror because sometimes i think time just being out of joint uh, um sets the stage for that you know an appropriate enough disruption of lawfulness <laughs> that things become mysterious or horrific I mean, I also think a lot of writing in general and a lot of fiction in general is this attempt to deal with the fact that the past never really goes away. I was trying to remember yesterday who said the past isn't over, it's not even past. Is that a Faulkner line, maybe? But I do, you know, I'm very into psychoanalysis, as I know you are too, Connor, and I don't know if you are at all, Nathan, but such a big part of that sort of philosophy is the idea that the past is always with us, even if we don't want it to be. And Nathan, I felt that so strongly in what I've read of your work on a deeper, bigger level, it's like a sort of everyday occurrence and these things that uh, perhaps not to you, but to a reader seem ancient. The idea of these sort of ancient societies or monsters kind of showing up in contemporary everyday life, I think sort of speaks maybe uh, intentionally or not to that Freudian aspect of writing that it's like, nope, the shitty things that happened five years ago, a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, still 
here and we don't want them to still be here. We want to pretend they're gone, but they're never really gone. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think uh, when you first bring up the idea of the past not being gone, uh, you know, I thought of it's one of the hallmarks of Gothic literature, you know, the of the of the the past coming back. Um, You know, it's it it's a definitive quality of ghost stories. And um, and of course, of horror fiction, I think, by extension. And uh, and and I know that as a writer, uh, mine certainly haunts me all the time. And that's and, and writing is how I uh, how I grapple with that. You know, um, a lot of the stories that I write are just efforts to to reckon with uh, my own life. Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that I think the idea of the past never being gone of it of it of it holding sway over us even now is uh and the characters that we write is is uh intrinsic to those stories it's interesting because when i when i toured for hawk mountain and sarah was part of that tour we did an event together one of the questions that kept coming up was about trauma and people kept asking about um you know the evocation of traumatic events but in some ways like you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I kept saying, well, like, is it is it really trauma or is it just that, uh, you know, there's an, a sort of pathology of memory or something like that that's happening here where, you know, everything is present all the time and that we've made we've made our own destinies, which is a confusing maybe concept or whatever by just. Uh, having the past be constantly present with us, I didn't. I, I wasn't sure why people kept singling out um, as if it were directly causal. This idea of some horrible singular past experience, and I, I and then that should be the shaping force. I mean, I was even thinking about that, and <clears throat> which I guess is like the most trauma informed story of yours, Nathan, and probably one of your most famous stories, Wild Acre, where someone sees a a werewolf uh, kill someone and essentially just keeps mulling over it again and again. But it's, it's not just the fallout from the werewolf, that person's entire life circumstances have (laughs) the resonance of a really difficult past, which there, you know, um, in the community and in the area, which are like trying to deal with. And so in some ways, I think like when we talk about the past, we try to get super specific about, causality, which is, again, like maybe a problem of psychoanalysis or something, Sarah? I think that in psychoanalysis, the idea of trauma, which has been sort of bastardized in popular culture, and it's useful to people, it's a helpful tool for people that helps them look at their life. So I don't want to knock it. But the original sort of take is not a bad thing happened to you and now you're fucked up or a a bad thing happened to anyone and now they're fucked up. It's why this bad thing happened to you in particular and fucked you (laughs) up. Right. Because I've had super shitty things happen to me that I just kind of went on with my life. They just weren't that big of a deal, like a bad experience, experiences with violence or whatever. And, and I was shaken up for a couple of days, but it didn't really affect me. But then I think this is the horror part of it. The scary part of it is that ordinary everyday life events can coincide with our own mm. damage that every human being has. I think there's a popular notion now that damage and pain are escapable. That's not my point of view. I don't think they're escapable. Part of life is getting hurt and getting hurt over and over again. And that is in itself a fucking horror novel. Uh, so that we can have these horrible encounters happen and they cannot, in fact, traumatize us. 
but sometimes our normal everyday little exchanges with people we care about can hurt us deeply because they open some other wound or some other experience. And that's a little bit difficult to face, especially when you think of yourself being the one hurting people just by you like people and they don't like you back. You say something that happens to be the wrong fucking thing at the wrong fucking time. <laughs> and you can really, really hurt someone. And I think that is in itself horror to me. Well, that, that's why I love the like Slavo Zizek thing about the Joker. Like people were like, what do you think about the Joker? And he's like, I do not have to see this movie. He's like, because it'll just do what every other movie does, which is it'll show all the horrible events that led up to this person being the Joker. But the point is most people have horrible events like that happen and they don't become the Joker. So why are we, <laughs> why are we, you know, trying to, you know, create this picture of this chain of causality? So yeah, anyway. Chain sorry. of causality. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this is germane or not, but I was, as you we were, as you both were talking, I was thinking about how uh, our culture has changed in, in to this degree too, where things don't fall into the past as readily as they used to. There used to be a lot more ephemerality to the nature of our engagement with the world, mm. and now um, we keep uh, we keep freezing it, and saving it, and 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 archiving it, and and revisiting it over and over again. Um, uh, and so it's hard for things to go away. It's hard for the memory to fade. And it's hard for the brain to do, I think, what it does naturally, which is to uh, kind of, as it fades away, to kind of contextualize it and create our own narrative around it. And yeah. sometimes it can be a kind of a healing, mm. I think all of that's a very healing process. And I think that the the way we've sort of uh, almost fetishized uh, the idea of trauma is, is, uh, I'm not saying everyone does this, but I think this is yeah. something that is, that is happening. And I think that is uh, interfering with our ability to heal, heal from it. Mm. It's like a ghost that doesn't return. Yeah. It's never left. There's also, I've heard a couple things that really struck me on like that, the preserving of the details as if that will give us clarity. When I think you're absolutely right, Nathan, <laughs> that what gives us clarity is our coming up with our own narrative of things. Mm. So there's this book that I'm obsessed with that I've read probably 10 times over the years. It's called uh, Persephone Returns. It's out of print. I think the author is Tanya Wilkinson. She's a Jungian writer, therapist. I don't really know anything about her. It's a brilliant book. And she talks a lot about, I'm sure you guys know the myth of Persephone and the underworld, and she ate the pomegranate seeds. So her whole life is determined by this sort of keeping score and keeping track and she describes that as satanic not in a religious sense but in a sort of psychological sense that this idea of keeping track of all the little details and all the little no 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 you told me you'd be home at five and it's five fifteen. no you promised me cupcakes but you brought me a, a loaf cake or whatever like but you know um and i've heard therapists say that too like going through the details isn't going to help you but when a horrible event has happened i have found myself doing that sifting through the details mm. How can I, what could I have done different on June 12th? What could I have different on May 21st? How should I have uh, dealt with that? So it doesn't matter. The thing that makes you move forward is, I think, exactly as you said, Nathan, the narrative. And sometimes that's uh, a gruesome narrative, but it's one that you can live with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's there's a really beautiful, just to Nathan's point, and then I, I want to pick up on yours then, Sarah, too. There's a really beautiful novel. One of my favorite novels, it's Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson. And it's, you know, 90 pages long. It's just, uh, just stunning. And one of the reasons why it's so beautiful is that you get a picture of life when 
things did fall away. I mean, it's all about, uh, I'm not going to get the exact time period right, but it's obviously it's before uh, most communication by phone and all this. A guy's house uh, is destroyed and he loses his family and he moves to find a new job and to get new work. And he's just sort of moving in and out of these towns as if, there's a what we would consider a dreamlike quality, but was just actually the state of life at the time. You know, and when when you start doing that, when you start kind of untying uh, the way that we place these constant stakes on everything through photos, through um, updates, et cetera, et cetera, y- you start to get a feeling of how people could have lived before what the experience of living and encountering the world and how it is more in some ways pronounced and in some ways blurred at the edges. Um, and, and maybe even going back before that, the experience of consciousness then would have been even different. And I, I love that. When I'm thinking about what you said, Sarah, about the detailing it seems like a almost like an erotic act to start detailing everything. It's like if your partner tells you that they slept with someone else and you're like, mm-hmm. did they kiss you? Did they touch you? Did they tell you they loved you? Did they, you know, it's like the jealousy is actually an eroticization because you're like so consumed with the intensity of imagining it that you want more and more and more details. And it's kind of seems like the flip side of that to me with <laughs> this you know, reality seeking, it's like the, the way that we're um, marking everything, as you were saying, Nathan, like the way you're preserving everything almost seems like this frustrated, erotic act to me, <laughs> the cataloging of it all. Um, I, I think it's erotic, certainly in the sense of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Eros, like life force, like as it's looking for truth in the wrong place. It's looking mm. for... um reality it's looking for reality and i think that is also eroticism is looking for an intensity of experience like you said a reality of experience um and you're not going to find it in what happened when you're never going to whether it's your partner cheating or you know i have all this crazy shit in my family history and sometimes i'm like should i try to figure out what's true and what's not and i'm like what's that going to do for me if i find out what really happened to my mother or my grandmother or whatever that's not going to really change anything for me um but there is this this quest for truth that uh, I don't know. I think I'm a bit cynical about it at this point. Yeah, and that is actually so. I don't know if you've gotten to read this one, Sarah, but Nathan has a very long story about someone finding find a cell phone at a bar that just has these like ter- terrible images and messages on it, and trying to find out the truth of it and trying to um, bring together the <laughs> the narrative of it actually is bad news in a way. So narrativizing also has its own uh, sort of horrors to it as well. So, yeah, in the story, he finds this te- this phone with those images, as you say, and he's got this this, in- this impulse to, to look at them, and they're gruesome images. And I was thinking a lot about what we were just talking about, this, well, it's also juxtaposed this impulse with the, with this, this need to, uh, to know what's being hidden from you uh, by the person who's close to you. This becomes a point of conflict between him and his girlfriend. You know, what are you hiding? What's on, what's on the phone? Who, 
what what are those texts that you're getting? You know, and it's uh, and I was reminded of the way the internet allows us to uh, to access things that are just not good for us. Um, and, and how that's almost a compulsion, like the, the way we kind of, we prod a, uh, you know, prod a, a rotten tooth. Um, and, uh, and this, this need, I think to, uh, as Sarah was saying to just to know all the details, um, and, uh, and it, it, that was the, uh, that was the, the, you know, the compulsion, uh, behind the story. And I think that that's that kind of human compulsion is something that so often causes us enormous grief. Um, you know, as you were saying, it, it doesn't matter what the truth is. Uh, or maybe, let me rephrase that. Sometimes. Yeah. I think I misspoke on that one for sure. <laughs> there are times when it absolutely matters what the truth yeah, is. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm doing a poor job paraphrasing that, but no, I said something it's, dumb. <laughs> You're improving it. <laughs> Thank you. It's there are times when knowing the details of uh, of what happened, of 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 who is sending uh, your significant other texts, uh, is not going to do you or the situation or your relationship any good at all. Um, you know, there has to be a point in which you are just content to live with some mystery. I think. And 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 acknowledge that that is the state of the world, and it always has been. And the fear of living in mystery, you know, the need to clarify and to codify every single thing is going to, I think, one just drive you crazy. It's going to ruin your relationships, uh, make you suspicious and uh, and unhappy, uh, and it's also going to, uh, you know, sometimes you're going to find out more than you want to know there have been times in my own past where i've i've been the one feeling that kind of suspicious you know what is that who's who's talking to you Mm -hmm. and then sometimes i found out and i didn't it wasn't good news usually (laughs) usually i mean and i and i i I, later on i would think i thought back is did i need to know would my life have been better Mm -hmm. uh, if i had not known and i sometimes the answer was yes so it was like there was there was no need to poke into that into that mystery. Yeah, you suffer the consequences of also having to report to the other that you looked. So that's the yeah. whole other thing as well. It's like, uh transcend yeah, something. You become the person who looks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's, yeah. And so well, I will turn that over to you in a second, Sarah, because that's the detective in a lot of ways. <laughs> the person yeah. who suffers the consequences of looking. But yeah. like the I was thinking about what you're saying there, Nathan. It's like the, or, or like maybe the little kerfuffle about like the truth isn't important or whatever that, we, you know, we're sort of rephrasing. It's like, you know, we talk so much about truth, but we don't talk that much about making ourselves people who are worthy of and ready for the truth when it mm-hmm. comes, you know? And even in our relationships, it's like, we always want the other person to be honest with us, but if we're someone who lashes out when the truth is told, then do we really deserve the honesty? Are we making our our relationship a place where honesty can exist? Right. So that's a, a sort of on the ground example I'm thinking of. It's there's a thing that um, Manuel Swedenborg, the mystic, said. It was like, uh, uh, you know, truth without. <laughs> I think I'm going to get this wrong, but something like. Or wisdom without love is not wisdom. Love without wisdom is not love. That, in fact, that we have to develop ourselves in a certain way before truth can even appear. Um, because if 
we don't have some sort of warmth or steadiness or evenness or equanimity when the truth arises, it will appear to us in a false way or it will bring something false up in our souls. I mean, I think that ties to Hawk Mountain too. I'm thinking about it because I don't want to give away a lot, but there's two people and one of them either expresses a truth or investigates is there truth here and pays a price for it, if mm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to say, what's what actually is this situation? What actually is this relationship? Let me take that chance and sort of try and see what the nature of this is. And that doesn't go well for him. <laughs> that does not, spoiler, no happy ending. I don't know if you mind me saying that on the air. Talk Mountain, not a happy ending to that book. <laughs> Um, well, so yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, Yeah, but I also think that's like a bit, I don't know, as I get older, I think when I was younger, I did feel like there was some truth that like, if you could just find it out, you would know, you would know Mm. both on a big, big, big spiritual level and on a little everyday level, but mostly on that sort of big level of like, if I knew what was really out there, life would make sense. And now I'm 51 and I've done like a lot of weird you know, spiritual shit and occult shit in my life. And I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff. I I am further from knowing the truth than I was when I was, you know, 14 and became interested in metaphysics. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of truths are not knowable to us. And, and, and I think as you get older, you, or perhaps, I don't know, you guys tell me what you think for me, as I get older, uh, I am more comfortable with the idea of you're not going to know. You're just going to fucking do the best you can every day with the limited knowledge you have about the person in front of you, the larger material world, the larger spiritual and psychological world. You're not really going to know the consequences of your actions, which is in itself also somewhat horrific. Um, it can be horrific, but it's also uh, I, I've had much the similar, uh, the same experience, well, you're just, uh, much more comfortable uh, with the knowledge that I'm not going to know everything, that I can't know everything. And I find it, uh, I find it relaxing, you know, in many ways. Yeah. I, I find it, you know, just, there's a certain contentment in embracing yeah. the idea that uh, you're just, the world is mysterious. Uh, your yep. actions and the, the ripples of your actions are going to be mysterious to you. And uh, and there's beauty in that. And I, I kind of like that. Yeah, I, I think there's a Rudolf Steiner quote, which is, there's no truth but a coincidence of all truths. And I think that that's when I think about the kind of bringing together of truths, you know, um, to reveal the truth. I think that the thing that frightens me is not necessarily that I don't know the great truth, but that if I saw it, I wouldn't be able to recognize it. I think that bothers me a little bit more that if it appeared to me, I might not know how to read it. And so rather than necessarily like, I need to know it. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes, and I, I think that's like a, you know, maybe an old religious horror trope of like Gnosticism is the idea that like God would appear to you, but actually it would be, you know, this horrible demiurgic like kind of thing that would actually be out to get you. Or, you know, maybe the other version of that is, um, just kind of missing the chance, someone who is really offering you love and you can only experience it in a, in the sort of distorted way or you, you can't read it. Or maybe like, you know, I live in Ireland and people see fairies here all the time and like getting, yeah, like to encounter a fairy and like 
it gives you a message and you get it wrong, <laughs> you know, something like that. Even there's like some people that are like, if the fairy tells you to go left, don't forget that they speak in backwards terms. So you're supposed to go right. You know, I think about that kind of stuff all the time. I'm like, well, shit, like, I don't want to miss the cool thing that would happen if the fairy told me, because I don't know how to read or see the truth when it presents itself to me. Not, I think that's yeah. the nature of the supernatural experience of the paranormal experience is that it is misunderstood and that mm. it doesn't give a clear answer. And I think that's one reason why those experiences are so disturbing to the people who have them, but also to people who observe them or want to say that they're not true or want to say that they are literally true because they are an entire universe of ambiguity in which nothing ever makes sense. Robert Anton Wilson has the story that's like the penultimate story of that, which is a really tragic story. I may have actually told this story on this podcast before. He had a cosmic trigger. He writes about all these crazy experiences. He has taking a lot of psychedelics, doing a lot of like weird occult ritual shit and stuff happens. That's a potent combination, especially with a very intelligent, open-minded intel- uh, person as he seems to have been. And he was on this deep, deep, deep meditation retreat. And he got this, something's wrong with my son. I have to go home. I have to go back to Berkeley or whatever, because something has happened to my son and I have to leave immediately. Oh, yeah. And he goes yeah. home. I did tell it, right? Yeah, you he did. He goes home. This is a horrible, horrible story. His son is fine. His daughter is dead. Mm-hmm. There is mm. something in the nature of these experiences that they are off kilter. They are never on the nose. Or yeah. people get like some religious uh, observation, go and, and start a, a new religious community, the community fucking falls apart. There is an inherent disconnect of friction in these things. Um, if you try to make sense of them and get to the facts, you will lose yourself utterly. That's a, It reminds me of Wild Acre again, Nathan, because there's a moment where the guy who sees the werewolf sees a boy, right? It, you can fill in the gap there. You can create the closure there if you want, but it's not quite clear. So there is, I think, this, I think you've written about that sense where there's this kind of look here. Oh, no. <laughs> what, what actually is about to spring, you, you don't know. And there's it's not the indication. It's not like a canned moment where the, you know, kid says something that indicates you know uh the connection to what's about to come or yeah it's uh, it, it's i don't know if i was consciously doing it with that story but i but i think about you know what sarah was describing about how uh how our experience with the supernatural uh should we have one is almost almost by definition going to have to be a work of interpretation uh and probably flawed interpretation and so we're not going to probably truly apprehend what we're seeing. And I find that um, scary and exciting and invigorating and uh, strange all at once. And so it's rich, it's rich ground, uh, I think for a horror story. Um, It makes me think of, you know, Joel Lane wrote, he wrote an essay called uh, uh, the spectacular darkness, I think, and in which he described two strains of horror fiction. There's the uh, existential, uh, which, which he, I think, we, uh, Bradbury was his kind of like a apotheosis of that form, which is definitely uh, centered around the human internal experience of morality, right and wrong, uh, subjective uh, experience, and then there's the uh, ontological, uh, which he defined as kind of the Lovecraftian strain, and which is the kind of horror in which uh, we understand that the human scale is 
utterly unrelated to what we're seeing. Uh, <laughs> this is some kind of alien intrusion into our into our uh, ability to define the world around us. You know, something utterly utterly different. And and I think about that. Uh, you know, when the numinous or the supernatural kind of intrudes into our into our reality, we're going to we're not going to know what we're seeing. And so, going back to what we were saying before about narratives and, and building a narrative around our kind of remembered experience, the same sort of thing happens here. We kind of construct our own way of interpreting what we're seeing, and um, and that's going to be different, I think, for different people. Uh, I think I've kind of gone off track from what you were talking about yeah. a few minutes ago, but I think that's also like such a big part of what makes horror fiction work are those little moments, not having finished the story, but having heard about it, like the boy in the woods, little moments that don't make sense. And when you do, I do film and TV stuff too. And that is the hardest thing to get a producer or an exec or a finance person to understand. Mm -hmm. The little things that don't make sense are what makes it scary. If everything (laughs) adds up and it's explained, it's not that fucking scary anymore. Because it's like, wow, we vanquished the demon or whatever. But it's like the example I always use is in The Exorcist, which I haven't seen in years. So I hope I'm remembering it right. There's that little bit in the beginning about Captain Jack or whatever it is with the Ouija board. That doesn't really directly relate, if I remember right, to the like monstrous demon that overtakes her. Mm. But it's the incongruence and the weight. What that we, it's disturbing when you read it on the page. If you're trying to analyze a script or a book, you're like, why is that there? It doesn't fit with sort of most people's ideas of how a story works in a love story, which I also really like. You wouldn't have something like that. Or in a detective story, you would fucking die if there was some little red herring that was explained. You would be, dev- mm. you know, really disappointed. But in horror, it's part of what makes it work for reasons I cannot articulate better than I'm articulating now. It's really mm-hmm. hard to explain to people or for me to even understand. Yeah, it's the uncanniness. It's the weirdness, yeah. the eeriness. It's, the, it's, that, it's that friction um, between what we understand and what we're seeing or experiencing, I think. Uh, and I think, and I, th- I agree with you entirely. I think so many, especially I see this in films, but this is in, in books too, where everything has to be explained because they become mm-hmm. more puzzle boxes than than experiences of horror and uh like little clockwork mechanisms and so yep. they become less interesting the more you go on and so when you get to the third act all you're seeing is how the little pieces fit and you're like oh i i get it i get the mechanism it's no longer any in any way viscerally interesting anymore and I contrast that with the first time I saw movies like uh like uh, Cairo or uh Pulse uh, by Kurosawa, that Japanese movie, it makes sense, or, or a lot of David Lynch movies, they make sense on the on the level of dream logic, mm-hmm. and they stay eerie and, uh, and uncanny, and they're disturbing all the way through, and uh, and they're so much more potent as works of horror than so many of the you know <laughs> the horror movies we're seeing just kind of churned out by the on the conveyor belt in Hollywood. Yeah, I dream logic is an expression I use a lot. And the director, mm-hmm. David Slade, who is one of our best living horror directors, is a good friend of mine. And we talk about this dream logic concept a lot when we have been lucky enough to work together. Nothing has made it to screen. So no one has ever seen any of it, everything or made it to screen <laughs> and not made it to broadcast. But we do work together a lot. But there's a dream logic con- is something we talk about constantly. Yeah. Um, and I have a publishing company and I named it Dreamland because of that, because of that dream logic is such a important concept to me yeah I, i'm reminded of um so my friend una malali who sarah actually has been on the show with before she's a journalist here in ireland but she told me a story about i think it was someone in her family who 
um, was feeding the foxes that were coming to her backyard. She was putting out food for them every night. And I mean, foxes are just, they're everywhere in Ireland, but you know, you don't really get much of a prolonged glimpse at them. They just, you know, trot down the street and disappear into the bushes and she wanted to see them. And so she started feeding them. And then one day uh, she forgot to feed them. And she opened the door and there was a torn off fox tail sitting at the back. Like she had violated some sort of rule in in the fox world that just didn't make sense. She was trying to sort of bring (laughs) the relationship of, I feed you. Oh, I missed a day. It's okay. But somehow the foxes had their own, you know, um, response or experience of what was happening there. And then this became the appropriate you know, uh, reaction. And I think it's that idea that there might be a world of, uh, I I hesitate to use this word, but I'll I'll use it anyway, a world of lawfulness that is not our own world of lawfulness. Like, so you're saying dream logic, but, um, and, and it could be that actually there are no worlds of lawfulness at all. And in fact, there's just these intersecting planes of chaos, but it's, that's a bummer, (laughs) but yeah, that would suck. Although, you know, it could be really beautiful, but I think the, the idea that like um, there's something else running at the same time. And we know that that must be so because the animals show it to us all the time. Animals constantly show this to us. Even a cat, it's like trying to figure out what part of your cat that you can pet is always like a gambit, you know? <laughs> like, oh, okay, you like it behind this ear, but that one means I get bit. You're okay with it when you're in the sun, but if I try to touch your stuff, you know, it's like there's this whole set of rules, which I think that that's why horror movies that have rules are often very appealing. Like, um, uh, I just saw... Um, talk to me and it has its whole system of rules around this relic that conjures ghosts or gremlins gremlins is the you know the biggest rule you know i think is that mm-hmm. this yeah. this idea that um you know i mean all all monsters have some kind of rules around them vampires and werewolves and zombies and stuff and people play with those um, ad nauseum, um, oh, you shot the zombie in the head, but it didn't work. Um, I guess that's just a myth. But with gremlins, it's we can, we know the rules, we can interact with them. And uh, how much do we, how much do we want to? And I think that that's, that kind of stuff is so interesting to me. Um, <laughs> one, because again, it's like, <laughs> like I know I'll be healthy if I meditate and I eat well. And I go to the gym, but I still don't fucking do it. You know, <laughs> like I know the rules to stop myself from becoming a hunched over shibboleth gremlin thing you know, as I age. Wait, so what am I doing? I'm feeding myself after midnight. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> what is it in me that can't abide even though? So, um, and I think part of it is, Again, maybe there's like a truth part there. Maybe it's like, well, why should it matter if I feed him after midnight? I think Gremlins 2 played with that a lot. It was like, well, what if a, a mogwai eats something and it gets something gets stuck in their teeth and then they end up swallowing that after midnight or whatever? Like we want to have some kind of coherence around it more than we even want to obey it or work with it somehow. I was just thinking about this in terms of like sex and relationships the other day because I was talking to someone who's very into like poly and open relationships. He was talking about these relationships. He's like, people don't cheat. 
I'm like, oh yeah, you, whatever the rule is, someone's going to break it. <laughs> right. Do you think if it's an open relationship and you can fuck anyone, they will still find a way to cheat. Right. Like they'll, they'll lie they, about it. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's the one person you're not supposed to, or you're not, <laughs> right. to, like, right. you establish the rules and you break the rules because the act that is, I think often, not yeah. always, sometimes rules are stupid rules or you're self-destructive or there's a good reason to break them. But sometimes the thing is to do the taboo thing to push the boundary. Mm-hmm. And I think that relates sort of back to the kind of psychoanalysis we were talking about because those rules are a defense mechanism against the past. Mm-hmm. The rules of uh, uh, don't kiss on the lips or don't feed the gremlin after midnight or whatever in a metaphorical sense could possibly in some cases be our defenses against looking at the ugliness of our past or the things in our unconscious we don't want to mm-hmm. look at. But then we have Another urge, which is the urge to look at it, to mm-hmm. see what's going on under there. Who am I really? Not in the sense of getting to truth, but just like, who the fuck am I as a person? What is going on in my life? What do I actually want? So there is both the desire to obey rules and to be the good little citizen, but there is also the desire to push every boundary, to chip away at it a little bit, both because of the thrill of the taboo and because we have a strong suspicion that something good is on the other side of breaking the rules. There is often on the other side of breaking rules, some kind of knowledge or wisdom to be gained. Not always. Sometimes it's just a shitty thing you shouldn't do. Mm. Yeah, we all have a little bit of Bluebeard and Bluebeard's wife in us at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. I I want to take a step back and ask a little more directly, since we've talked about this. Um, you know, Nathan, you, <laughs> you wrote a book about titled you know with lake monsters in the title right these are cryptids Mm -hmm. that people are think about talk about seeing all the time um i actually just want to ask if you've had those kinds of experiences if you've encountered some of these strange things that we're talking about because um i mean i've i've had my own experiences i've talked about them a little bit on the show but um i mean since we are talking so all, all talking so knowingly about these paranormal experiences <laughs> and what to do and not do. Um, I'm wondering, you know, creating a survival guide for people listening. Um, maybe I, I've i never heard anyone actually just ask you, you know, uh, about that directly. And I'm interested. I never have. Uh, and I say that regretfully. Uh, I'm... <laughs> I guess the uh, I, I would love to. Um, I guess you know the follow up question is: Do you believe in in paranormal uh, actions? I guess uh, entities. Uh, and and the que- answer to that would be: I don't know. Uh, it used to be when I was much younger. I would say a categorically no. You know, uh, <laughs> but as we were just talking about a little earlier, the older I get, the more I realize I know so much less than I thought I did. And, um, and, you know, the more of the world we understand, I think the, the less confident I am in being definitive about anything. Uh, so, you know, I don't believe in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness monster. I don't think there are lake monsters, but, uh, are there ghosts? Are there, you know, I don't, I honestly don't know, but I have, I've never seen anything to, uh, to, uh, to push back against that, that not knowing. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I suppose we we could say, oh well, when we read horror, it's and and we're scared by it or see a horror movie, we're scared by it. It's reaching in and you know 
snagging on some internal psychological cue. Or we could say like, no, we're afraid of ghosts and devils and all this kind of stuff. And I, I sometimes think that the fear of horror is actually just a kind of knowingness that those things do exist in a way. Now I'm not, I'm not going to make that argument. Like I'm not, that's not going to be my last stand, but I do think that there's something to it that in fact, the draw of, (laughs) of encountering it at all is the encounter with that part of ourselves that knows it's real. I think there is certain common human experiences. And one of them is you go into the woods, you encounter something. Uh, I think uh, not every culture has the something, but most do as far as I know. So in Ireland, it would be a fairy or a leprechaun. In our very technological society, it would be an alien from outer space who has all kinds of computer shit or whatever aliens are supposed to have. In uh, Mayan culture, I think it's called a chula. I don't, no, I don't think I'm getting that right, but in Mayan culture and a lot of Native American cultures. So the experience is, or if you're a, a I was just uh, talking to a good friend of mine who's, we we're talking about the satanic panic. It was a cult in that case. You walked into the woods and there were people doing rituals and raising Satan, like the witch trials, maybe. So there's this common human experience of, I was walking home, I made a wrong turn, or I took the wrong road. I saw light. Something happened that I only half remember. I was told some things that as we discussed, I may or may not have interpreted correctly. And it both enhanced my life and destroyed my life, maybe one or the other, maybe both to some degree. So those experiences are a real thing that happens to people. What is the material reality of it? Nobody fucking knows. But these seem to be common experiences that happen to people. I think with haunted houses are a constant fascination to me. I have a haunted house story called Marigold that is on Audible. I never fucking plug my own shit, but I'm plugging that because it's something I wrote. And no one has listened. So like I've listened to it. Listen it's to great. It, Thank you. <laughs> and is Thank it, you, uh, Connor, who's, who's my the, true friend. Who reads it? Is it <laughs> I don't want to say that. Zoe Kazan Zoe and Kazan, uh, Jason Culp, two yeah. really, really wonderful actors. Um but it is uh, this experience, and I grew up in an old house, and my father was an architect, and um, uh, so this house thing is very important to me. There is an experience of going to a place, whether it's mm. a, a natural place or a a house, but the house is more interesting to me than the natural place, but that's just me, and having a feeling like something isn't right here. So whether mm. that's materialized in the sense of a ghost or it's just like a feeling you have. Or so things stop working. I uh, drove into San Francisco a couple of days ago from, uh, I was visiting friends in Carmel by the sea. And I hadn't been here in a really long time. And I didn't really feel great about coming here. It's not my favorite city, but I needed to do some book research. And I was quite overwhelmed with nostalgia, not having been here for a while. And almost as soon as I got here, my electronics started breaking. There is a sense of San Francisco as a haunted place for me. Um, I'm in the tech capital of the world and I can't download books on my Kindle. Um, no one seems to think that's significant except me. I've tried to talk to people about it and they're like, those aren't related. I'm like, they are related <laughs> in my fucking head, if nowhere else. And that's what matters. But there are certain experiences that we don't understand the material reality of them, or maybe there is no material reality. Maybe they're just psychological experiences we are prone to. Mm. That's my answer to that question. <laughs> you know, like if we encounter these things in life, yeah, they would, probably frighten us give us a chill or whatever and but 
and when we see them visually interpreted in film, we can get really scared, but it is hard to find fiction writing that frightens us in the same way. Now, interestingly, I'm talking to two people whose writing has actually scared me, but the, um, the translation of these things into language, uh, to, to symbolic language, to words on a page, and then the act and the work and the effort and pleasure of reading them seems to pull some of the scariness away. In fact, a, a lot of horror that I read, the best that it can do really is disturb me rather than really scare me. It can make me feel really sick um, or uncomfortable. I mean, just a great easy example of that is Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? by Joyce Carol Oates. It's like, um, or Strip Poker, which is another one of hers that has a similar vibe where you just you just feel really, really upset the entire time. But being f- scared, again, I think I, I, it's, you know, consensus that Come Closer is one of the scariest books ever written. And I did feel actually very afraid. Obviously, you can't pull off a jump scare in the same way when you're writing as you can in a in a film. But I'm wondering why that is. These things that scare us, <clears throat> once they're down on the page, they'll still do something. They'll unsettle. But scary is harder. Um, and I'd like to... One, I want to figure out how to get past that because I want to scare the shit out of people. <laughs> but I also, um, I also want to figure out what that is and maybe utilize the thing that it does the, to to its best effect, and also just speak to people who are listening who are like love horror movies but don't necessarily read as much horror because it doesn't give them that same thing. That's interesting. Um, I think. Well, I think one of the problems of horror fiction is saddled with is that word scare because i think then a lot some people go into it reading a horror novel or a horror short story and they go oh this is going to scare me mm. and they might read a brilliant work and yet not feel scared and therefore feel disappointed um and i think that uh, uh i don't know i think when i go when i feel scared like when i actually feel that that physical sensation i i almost never feel it i can't remember ever feeling it when i was reading um, I can feel it sometimes at the movies, rarely, but sometimes. Um, sometimes if I'm playing a scary video game, I can feel it. Um, and there are certain locations uh, where I felt it. The most recent I've been, is when I went to a storage facility where I have a little you know, storage you know, room in this great, big, quiet building. And I went there at 9 o'clock at night. It was dark outside. The place was entirely empty. Um, the lights were all off and they would kind of light up as their motion sensors. And so as I walked down, they would blunk, blunk, blunk. And it was the most unsettling place. And it was the, and the most unsettled feeling I'd had. And it probably is, a, you know, in the years and years, um, this kind of like uninhabited and yet somehow inhabited space. Um, but in books, uh, I certainly never tried to, go for that feeling i uh i don't ever try to scare a reader i i tend to go for uh that what we we're talking about before a feeling of eeriness or uncanniness a feeling of atmosphere i think horror fiction lives and dies by atmosphere and um and especially supernatural horror fiction and uh and i think 
as well, horror is like comedy in that in that what hits my button is going to be different from what hits your button. You know, it's going to be and there's is no way you can you can predict what that who's going to be affected or how to do that. You just I I write what makes me uncomfortable and disturbed and unsettled. And I take it for granted that that's going to unsettle some other people too, but it won't everybody. And I think that's yeah. all I can do. I think you hit the nail on the head with you write what makes you feel unsettled, disturbed. I think just on a like very mechanical level of of writing advice to anyone's listening, that's what you want. If you whatever you're writing, you want to feel the thing that you're writing. So if you right. want to write something scary, you should be like feeling freaked out. Like, I don't know if I should write this. This is mm-hmm. weird shit. I'm really uncomfortable right now. If you want to write a love story, you should feel wrapped up and giddy and excited. Um, whatever the sad same thing. If you want to write uh, something that's going to move people, if you're not at the point where you're crying or whatever your equivalent is, if you're not a crier when you're writing it, that's not really going to happen. Right. Um, and then I think also, again, just to go on like a very base mechanical level, how you can sort of get that level of fear and fiction is just the same thing that, well, good, good horror movies do is just a real attention to detail and slowing things around and setting one expectation and then sort of breaking that expectation. There's little, mm. a lot of little tricks you can use and tricks cheapens it, but to some degree, writing is cheap. To some degree, it's a bag of cheap tricks. <laughs> to some degree, it's like a deep spiritual quest, right? It's all these things. But there are all these little sort of pacing tricks and the way you uh, dole out information that can really, really bring that feeling of, oh, holy fuck, what the hell is happening right mm-hmm. now? But the story of yours, it scared me, Nathan. I cannot remember the name, but it was the woman. She meets the man in the coffee shop. I don't want to give it away. He you has a car that he stole. What's it called? You go where it takes you. You yeah. go where it takes right. you. The ending of that, which was actually, there's a supernatural event in the book or or whatever the word is, a, a unusual, not reality-based event. <laughs> and um, But then the ending is a mundane event that is far more frightening mm. than the weird, crazy supernatural shit that happens. That was what actually made me feel, I was just reading it a couple hours ago, like, hey, oh, oh my God. Mm. Um. And it was the unexpected turn that brought that feeling for me. So, but that wasn't a, a feeling of being scared. Probably that was just the disturbance. Have you felt either of you felt like the scare, the level of like I'm actually scared when reading something? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I I'm glad you brought it there because that's what I was going to do next, which is like has um, the moment they see that the moment we're shown as readers, the house in haunting of Hill house coming up over the hill mm. and it's there. It was vile. It's the, the line. Um, it still gives me shivers. Now I'm not jumping, but I am frightened. You know, I am frightened of re-evoking certain scenes. Um, for me, there's a, I, there's no moment of this, but there's a feeling throughout when I read house of leaves, um, by Mark Z. Danielewski, where I felt scared to go to sleep. Um, I, I don't know why. Now, that one's a little harder to pinpoint because I couldn't tell you this moment and this thing made me scared. But when I was reading it, I was like, fuck. Like, I, I started getting that kind of stress level response that you get when you uh, would see 
a horror film. I, I think some of it is just purely sensory. You know, um, we're used to feeling that kind of stress and fear, experiencing it through the senses, which the senses are obviously doing something different when you're reading. But I, so maybe a pop-up book could be really scary or something. I don't know. There was a pop-up book of phobias once and you're afraid of one of those things. Like there's one with a giant spider Mm -hmm. and my best friend is terrified of spiders. And when I opened it, he was like, you know, like he really did freak out. But again, you know, obviously that we're not talking about the same thing there. Um, I think uh, it was going to say there's a story called doll hands by Adam Neville. And when I read that, he also has another story called The Pig Thing. <laughs> Great title. Um, but when I read Doll Hands, um, which is this weird... Have you guys read that story? Do you know that story? I do no, not. I read Neville. And in fact, Neville is one of the few writers who's actually creepy, scared me too. But Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just say for the audience then, because um, he's unfortunately not part of this horror series, um, <laughs> that he, he, as a guest... But he, um, it's this weird sort of post-apocalyptic time when people and animals are kind of merged and they have this, it's it's almost like Disney-ish in its own way. But then there's like these weird therianthrope like beings that have animal heads and they're kind of just living their life in this awful, gaseous, poisonous cloud. And um, just what they do do and how they respond to each other is sickening. And while I was disturbed or unsettled as I read it, later I was afraid to think about it. So the fear Mm. came from, I don't want to go near what I imagined and thought. I don't want to think about that story because it scares me, which of course is a tremendous delight and pleasure as well that (laughs) thrill of him having created a memory in me that i'm afraid to approach so Mm -hmm. i think there's something like that it's like a horror story can create an inner artifact or a novel can create an inner artifact which frightens us again and again after but maybe not so easy to do it in the moment i think that's apt because i'm just thinking about your story nathan the one i was just talking about and like when i read it at the moment this is like literally just like four hours ago. I was like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I like the feeling was discomfort, as you said. But then the more I thought about it, I felt scared. And I think with Hawk Mountain, it was I felt actual fear, not when I was reading some of the the extreme parts of it, not in terms of like looking around my house, like, holy fuck, is there someone here? Is that gonna happen to me? But I had become attached to the characters. So mm-hmm. I felt fear for the characters uh, for uh. the incredibly dark places they were going. That's not exactly the same thing as like, no, is different. there a ghost mm-hmm. in my room right now? But um, but I felt, mm-hmm. you know, book characters to a degree become real to you. But I'm also, I'm going to pick up on something you just said, which is the delight of this, which I don't understand. And I don't know if you guys understand, like, why is horror delightful? I don't, <laughs> I don't fucking get that. And I write it and I read it and I watch it and I still don't get it. Um, I don't understand that at all. It appeals to me on on two basic different levels. There's the surface level, which I kind of think is the candy coating level, uh, which is just the uh, the uh, the artifice of it. You know, the Halloweenness of it. You know, the 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 crooked gravestones and the witches flying over the full moon and and the and the creaky old house, uh, the skeletons, just the 
all the accoutrement of it. Uh, I just, I love it. Just love it. Um, uh, but then there's the other part of it, the, the, where we get past the, you know, the, you know, the kind of like the sweetness of it into the real horror, which is the disturbing stuff, the stuff that unsettles and stuff that you were just saying, you know, you think about it for a while and it scares you later on. It's an idea that, that lingers and, uh, and troubles. Um, and I don't know why that's appealing, but it's, it, it really is. I think I, I maybe I have a couple like theories and I think to me anyway, it's appealing because it appeals to me the same way sad songs do. I love sad songs because there is a recognition. When yeah. I hear a sad song or when I read a horror story that strikes me, uh, you know, in a, in a deep way, I recognize something in there that feels true to me and that feels unspoken uh, uh, in most circumstances. And mm-hmm. if I, you know, it, it, if I, it feels like there's something that I don't articulate or have not articulated or is not commonly spoken of. And, and but, but when it's presented to me, it's like, oh, I recognize a part of myself, you know, some yeah. hidden, frightened or ugly part of myself uh, that I don't like to be exposed. And, and here it is presented to me in this in this artistic way, you know, in a way that is couched in narrative, in a way that is makes a kind of sense that, uh, you know, there's a catharsis in there. There's a is a, a self recognition and a yeah. peaceful, a communion. I mean, I think a lot yes. of writing is communion with other people, and I think you just articulated That's a perfect that. Word for it. Yeah, yeah. I I think there's also, I think there's a part too for me when we were talking about that dream logic before, where, um, the sense of absolute freedom. Um, mm. This is something that I like the um when you were asking, why is it pleasurable? There's that line. It's the first line, I think in all of the books of blood by Clyde Barker, which is uh, there's no delight, the equal of dread. So long as it is someone else's, um, which is from his story dread. And I think like it is, it is delight, you know, I mean, that is where it comes from. Um, and, and in his story, Cabal, well, actually in the movie Nightbreed, which is based on Cabal, the, one of the characters, this monster character who lives in this monster town, Midian, is telling uh, the human, well, he's becoming monster, but this human saying, uh, you know, we when you dream, you dream of flying, you dream of turning into an animal. Like, that's what we can do. And I think that the access to that dream logic is in some ways the uh, – the place where we find freedom, where we're not even bound by our forms or our bodies, that if the world is filled with strange and horrifying things, um, then we have access to something. And I, I, it's interesting to me which ones people would find appealing. This is something that people talk about when they like horror all the time. Well, do you like slasher movies or do you like the paranormal? But both of those represent a certain kind of freedom. It, you know, if you like the slasher movie, then there's something appealing to you about the fact that that is the absolute truth, which is that we could just go on a killing spree whenever we wanted. Like, we could do that right now. <laughs> I'm not suggesting it for the three of us, but, you know, we'll talk after the show. But no, I, but the, but. My day is free. <laughs> so there's the, there's a kind of law. <laughs> day is free. There's a law of, you know, um of sort of constraint, restraint, and then possibility that that brings out. Whereas the kind of laws of nature are what the supernatural stuff breaks. And I think in both, we sense like 
there's a real freedom there available to us if these things are true. Mm. We were talking before about laws and about uh, the universe of laws and, and competing universes of laws. And I think I think this is the, the both a fear and the appeal of the border. You know, so much of horror feels to me about borders and uh, and fear of what's coming across it and also the yearn to transgress it. You know, the yearning to transgress it, the uh, the, you know, the 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 compulsion towards chaos. And I think I'm glad you brought up Barker because uh, Barker, for me, as a younger reader, when I was a teenager growing up on the, you know, on the Kings and Mathesons and all that, I, when I when Barthic, Barker came along, uh, he just turned everything upside down. You know, the idea that that horror was uh, could be beautiful, could be could be the way to transgress your body, uh, your spirit into something mm. larger, stranger, maybe terrifying to those who witness it. But uh, it was a completely new way of thinking about horror and the appeal of it. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I think the, that urge to transgress is a big part of the appeal. Yeah. I, I'm thinking about also just the, the freedom then that we have as writers. Like I'm uh, thinking about the stories and wounds that are just fucking crazy, man. Like, they're so there's so much imagery and it's so overflowing so that even in hell which is you know a confining eternity of prison ship <laughs> you've then populated it with all this wild imagery that's bursting out of it and contained within it so that i think maybe that's part of the appeal of us writing it too is the the access to imagining our ways out of every single kind of constraint that we have. Uh, yeah, there was, a, especially with those stories, it was writing them was kind of a reaction against the first book in the sense that the first book was so grounded in, in realism. I wanted to just, I was kind of tired of it. It's like I would swing the pendulum the other way and just go and just kind of go bonkers for a while. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of freedom and it felt, you know, personally transgressive in that it was i felt very nervous doing it uh only because it was a direction i hadn't gone before and and so uh it just felt like i was doing something wrong um can i ask you something about one of those stories nathan sure i was uh i never remember what anything is called even the things i write but it's a laboratory and it's a uh a second person voice we were watching you what is it the Diabolist. The Diabolist, which is so beautiful. And I was so struck by something, and I thought this was especially after Connor too, that the love mills are in hell. Mm. What's going on with that? I was so, so, so <laughs> curious that the love mills are in hell and not some fucking angel somewhere with Cupid's arrow. Bing, yeah, we love you. I mean, well, I thought there was something incredibly meaningful about it. The idea of that book is that we don't under our, our ideas of, of what those things are. Heaven and hell are completely are not are not right. You know, it's kind of the idea of that like, we think we apprehend it, but we don't really get it. Um, uh, so, yeah, the idea is that, and this comes up in a couple of the other stories too. That love is basically a hellish excrescence. You know, it's like what what. You know, it 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 drives us mad. It, it causes us to do kinds of all all kinds of deranged things, uh, self destructive things. 
Uh, it is a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it, it drives us toward passion and passion is not, um, passion is hellish, you know, not necessarily negative, but just of hell in this kind of, in this interpretation. Mm. Well, but then there's this aspect to it too, which is really, um, I don't know what, so what we're talking about in this story, um, for people who haven't read it, there's an imp that works in the love mills, which is sort of, I don't want to say liberated definitely isn't the right word from, from hell, but, um, brought into, uh, the world that we know a little better. Um, and, but the, the imp doesn't, doesn't know anything of the rest of hell. So in some ways, actually working in the love mills also is this mercy um, from the encounter with the rest of everything else that's horrific. So on the one hand, it's, you know, it's this terror. And on the other hand, uh, it's uh, this kind of lovely thing where even there's a confession like, well, I don't know about the rest of that. I just know the, the mills, you know. It's like a, he's like an ant. He's, he's, he's part of a collective and he does He's, he does his, the thing that he's designed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about the, um, the times in which, sorry, you mentioned this a little bit, but the times in which we write something which is upsetting to ourselves. Um, you know, this has definitely happened with me, not just with Hawk Mountain, which was very personally upsetting in a way, but I've written things where I felt like my imagination was certainly like, um, irresponsible in a way i wrote a story called cess which i'll just send you at some point but it, it's old i've never done anything with it i don't know if i ever will but there's some por- parts in there which are just absolutely horrific i mean truly like beyond and when i wrote it i had to show it to a friend and i was like is this okay <laughs> you know and she kind of went through everything that was happening in my life at that time. She's like, well, you were going through this, 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 of course, this is how you express it. And I was like, all right, thank you. That explains it all in a way. But um, I, I really struggle with the idea that somehow I need to be responsible to anything beyond my imagination. And then on the other hand, sometimes I'll write things that, are there and I'll think that I've not that I'm bad or anything like that, but I'll be like, oof, I'm not so sure. Um, yep. And then finally the, the final feeling in that sequence is like, come on, like this is what's, this is exactly what you need to do. This is exactly what you need to put out now. And so there's that struggle. Um, and I don't know if I, I think it gets talked about sometimes with horror but I don't really know if it gets talked about enough because it's a struggle that's very particular to writing very dark and violent fiction that happens. And we all have our own navigation system in it. Uh, the, the one approach that I would really be against is saying that um, everything has to be hopeful in one way or another, as if that's the moral clause of horror. Um, to me, that, seems wrong but besides that I, I think we all have our own dance with that freedom and you know violence and and darkness i certainly struggle with that i mean i've written some super super dark shit in horror and in crime um 
And it's hard to know, is this something I really want to like release into the world? But then I think it comes back to that idea of communion. And one thing I have, have said before and written before is that it is in our worst moments that we are most alike each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it is in our, our, you know, I've had a lot of loss in my life. I've lost a lot of people I love. And that is a common human experience, not at every age, you know, certainly when you're young, you might not have experienced that. But eventually, that is something you will have in common with everyone. I am a widow. My husband died last year. He had Huntington's disease, which is a rare disease. It was really horrific to go through. Every love story will end like ours ended. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people don't want to hear that or don't want to acknowledge it. And the future for them, and I am envious of them. I wish I could be one of them again. It's just a pink haze. So all of romance fiction, which I also really like, is a defense against, to some degree, the reality that every love story will become a horror story where one mm. of you, unless you jump off a cliff together, car accident together, those things don't happen very often. Um, though, so that is our moment of communion with each other. We will lose the people we love. There is no more common universal human experience than that. So I think I myself sometimes have the impulse, oh my God, do I really want to write this? But you think maybe writing this horrific thing is a way of extending a hand of friendship to someone who is in a state of abject fucking horror and no one around them will acknowledge it. Sometimes horrible things happen to us. People are fucking war refugees. People have been gang raped. I mean, these really, really horrific true life events and everyone just goes on all around them. So I think maybe by writing this incredibly dark stuff, we can provide that moment. Like, no, actually, it's you're not just going to go on with your life now. It's not just going to be okay now, and nothing will ever be the same. And we can metaphorically extend that hand of friendship to people who are really in that state. I think that often gets lost in these conversations, especially because they are so often conversations among just to speak for myself, I don't know about you guys, the very privileged people among the earth. I am certainly not a war refugee. I have never been homeless. I've never been hungry. That type of bad thing I have not experienced. Um, but if we can, again, have a point of relation with each other and our pain is more realistic than having a point of relation in each other with our joy, maybe. It's a beautiful way of putting it. It is also something that I, that I have wrestled with before. Um, uh, especially in that story that uh, you were talking about, the one about you know the woman in the in the diner, uh, and others as well. Um, but uh, the kind of the thing that I've told myself uh, throughout the years, uh, and maybe the only bit of useful writing advice I've ever had to give anybody, uh, I think, is to uh, write towards your shame, like the thing about the thing that you feel that brings you shame. Uh, that you don't ever want to talk about. That's what you write about. That's where you 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 dig toward that, because other people are also feeling it and not talking about it. And uh, and then when they see that, that's another moment of that recognition and that catharsis. I think that's another example of a communion that you were yeah. a moment ago. I, oh, just the ending of that story, which is the thing that really scared me, is an impulse that I think most people have had at some point in their life. Certainly parents, I mean, I'm not a parent, but from, from, from what I hear, every parent has had that impulse at some point. Yeah. Um, I, I think writing towards your shame is the best advice anyone could possibly get as a writer. Oh, it's so funny that you guys say that. I was Because when you were talking before, 
about pain. I was thinking about the comedian Anthony Jeselnik, who has this whole bit about murder suicide and how it's like the greatest way to go <laughs> because <laughs> you can. And but his he also talks about his comedy, which is extremely extremely dark. You know, he said something like, well, I just, I kind of want to imagine what it'd be like to be the worst person in the world. And, you know, I, I, none of his comedy is reality based. Like he makes jokes and, um, and he, he said, I want people to feel like they're, they've come to a horror movie when they come to see me. I'm not trying to shock them. I, I want them to come for that kind of feeling. And you do get it, you know. Um, I mean, I think <laughs> part of I, I love this idea of writing towards what your where your shame is. I think part of me, I, I hesitate even to say it. it's so funny. I hesitate even to say this, but I I sometimes want to just fucking brutalize people with the writing. Oh yeah, I don't. Mm-hmm. I I don't want it to do. You know, I just read um, C.J. Leeds' novel, Maeve Fly, and the very opening page is like, why do people think that you have to have some sort of, like, broken achievement to do what you want? Like, and wow. then the whole book just kind of follows someone who, you know, it really <laughs> just goes for it in the worst ways possible. And it, it's magnificent. And she references Bataille throughout and Bataille is that as well with uh, the blue, blue of noon, I think is especially the story of the eye is more in that one, but where it's just this excessive um, brutality, like, and I find that so interesting that that kind of writing used to exist more than it does now. And that kind of fiction, in fact, somehow was more allowed in and absolutely. Bataille and um, L'Autremont, but even if you listen to Toby Hooper talk about Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever, he's just like, we need to really fucking go for it. And I want more of that. I think the problem is almost like, uh, like people have tried to make versions of that where it's it's appealing to someone seeing it and laughing at it or with it, not being mm-hmm. really, really challenged by it. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is about me. Not a, I don't I don't mean any sort of scold on myself, but like what is it about that kind of thing that I want to do? Uh I had another Clyde Barker <laughs> thing where he said, you know, sometimes you just have to throw the characters to the fucking lions, you know? And without mercy. And there's something about that too. Um, because I feel like if we really are going to show, see, see I'm, I'm trying to make it ethically okay now. Yeah. Yeah. I find myself We are going to show anybody the, the experiences of the world, but I don't want to just make it ethical. I nope. think actually maybe the cultural impulse, the artistic impulse is something it's not beyond ethics, but it, like the foxtail or the monsters has its own uh, dream logic, as you said, or its own sort of plane of the way it works. Hmm. 
I have 20 million thoughts on that because that is such a good topic for me. <laughs> I mean, I think, first of all, I absolutely have that sadistic impulse when I write. Absolutely. I want to fucking torture people. And that is completely out of line with the rest of my personality. Because <laughs> right, exactly. you've spent time with me in real life, Connor. I am a nice person. And it's not nice, I hope, in like the namby pamby sense. I went on a bit too far with that. But um, but I, I it is important to me to be a decent human being. The word good has been uh, robbed of all meaning. The word kind in recent years has been robbed of all meaning. So I have adapted the word decency to try to express my desire mm. to just be a decent fucking person in the world. Mm. I do not have a sadistic impulse in my other relationships with people. Um, I do not have a sadistic uh, sexual impulse, which is, of course, the most known use of that word. I have none whatsoever. In my writing, I have a strong sadistic streak. I never thought of it in those terms until you brought it up, Connor. Um, I have a real desire to like, and Nelson Algren, I talk about this book all the time. I've been talking about it for 20 years. There's a book called Nonconformity that he wrote about writing. I love mm -hmm. Nelson Algren, a great mid-century American writer of uh, sort of his own genre. Um, and uh, he writes in Nonconformity about the desire to just fucking go for it as a writer and he says he uses a baseball metaphor i will mangle it because i don't know how to play or watch baseball or even what it really is but he says this uh, baseball player said i'm going to win no matter what happens i'm going to win that game and if mother is on whatever base i love my mother but if mother is on the base and I need the base, mother's got to go. <laughs> so, right. I don't know what that impulse is, but I think the three of us have it and any writer worth their salt. The sun degree has that. I'm going to go mm. balls to the walls, do the fucking thing to the bitter end. And I'm never giving up. And I don't care if everyone thinks I'm a fucking lunatic. I'm doing the goddamn thing. So what that is, I don't know. I also think we live in an era where people have an idea of what art and entertainment should be and what it should be as a moral lesson. I don't agree Absolutely. with that. I think it's okay. It's one of many, many, many things art can be. I don't object to art as a moral lesson, although I think it's usually utterly fucking trite and useless. The lesson of so-called moral and ethical contemporary fiction is often be nicer um, be kinder. Okay, well, someone's got a gun to my head right now. So I don't know if being nicer, being kinder is the way out of this. I've talked about this on your podcast before too, Connor. <laughs> this is a big topic last time. Well, um, can I can I say something to that and please. then um, give Nathan the, the a chance to respond to you? Like, because <laughs> I know you have thoughts. like five. I know. You, well, I know you have I'm five. Done. That's it. I'm good. Now you have five more points, and I want you to say them all, and no. I don't want to forget the ones you've already said. That's it. Which is, um, you know, aren't Art is moral, but it's moral in its form. I, that's how I feel about it. It's like, it's not about the content. It's like, there's, qu there's a quality to art that has its own kind of morality. And it's, it, that's, it's very difficult to identify because it's so individualized. You know, like I said, it exists somehow in the, like it exists in the cultural realm where that's about the individual in a lot of ways. Um, whereas the political realm is about two more people and the economic realm is about everybody. Um, and I think that the, because it has this kind of individuated morality to it, um, it becomes moral when it's good. So I find bad art extremely immoral. Yep. And I don't, I, it doesn't matter if it's teaching me the best lesson in the world. That's where its morality lies. Um, 
versus something that is absolutely horrific, but, you know, beautiful. And it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, that's a whole nother conversation about what makes the quality of art present, but um, it, what makes it good or, you know, good art or whatever. But uh, that's just a, that's not the same question as whether or not it's moral based on its content or what sort of themes it depicts. No, I enthusiastically agree with, with everything I've just heard. Uh, uh, yeah, I find uh, this kind of, I, I find, I, I, I get this kind of antagonistic impulse sometimes in my stories where I just, I want to, I want to, I want to hurt the reader. You know, I want to, I want them to feel, feel pain. And, uh, and, uh, I don't always feel that way, but when I do, it's, uh, it, there's a kind of a visceral sort of compulsion and satisfaction in doing it. And, um, you know, and I agree that we don't see that kind of writing anymore. And I do think there's this, there's this, impulse now to be to be safe and moralistic uh and i think you even see this in horror fiction and it's kind of yep it's it's weirdly alarming um and so when you find examples counterexamples to that like mayfly it's uh it's it's exciting and um you know i think uh i think this this impulse i think a lot of it comes from social media and you know we we, we need to kind of present the right the right face, the right mask yep. so that we're accepted. You know, I am a capital G capital P good person. I think the right <laughs> thoughts. Mm-hmm. And none of us always think the right thoughts. And that's what gives so much horror fiction its energy is that we all have the wrong thoughts sometimes. Uh that we don't all have the same wrong thoughts, but some of our thoughts are wrong. And uh and and channeling that into into a story, into a horror story gives it animation and life and vigor and 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 energy and uh and you know and and this compulsion to do the other thing this instinct to do the other thing the moralistic fiction you know the the lesson giving fiction i find very paternalistic you know very condescending Mm. Uh, it doesn't trust the reader at all and uh the reader is there to be instructed uh from my lofty position of, of moral rectitude and uh, and I, I find that appalling. I think that is immoral. Yep. That is immoral fiction. I agree with you completely. That lofty position of moral rectitude, is that what you said? Yeah. It is immoral. It is an immoral place to be. Yes. If you are a person who you think, well, I have the fucking answers. And I've been that person. So let it seem like I'm <laughs> shitting on anyone here. Uh, I have been that person who's like, I have answers. No one has any fucking answers. It is an immoral position to take. Yeah. Um, and to go back to something you said, Connor, the bad art, I just want to agree completely with that, but also qualify it a little bit. Because to me, what makes a work of art good or bad isn't really the quality of the art. It is the genuineness. It's Is it coming from that lofty, false, inherently, mm-hmm. utterly divorced from your true self position? Yes. Or I would rather read a romance novel that someone or, a, you know, I used to read a lot of pulp crime fiction that are written, they're dashed off in 25 days but there's yeah. a genuine impulse there. So maybe there's not the literary quality or the uh, uh, textual quality, but there is a genuine piece of a person in there well, as, as opposed to, life. sorry. Yeah. As the real life, that real vital energy. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, it. There's, yeah. there's, there's a, yeah. I mean, I, I mean that as one of the ways of identifying quality for sure. It's like, I thought so. Yeah. You know, like when I think of like two examples I love to give are, there's a science fiction like, berserko 
movie called Detention with Josh Hutcherson. It's like, nobody's seen it. It's crazy. It's the most obnoxious movie ever. I love it. I absolutely love it. If that's not to your taste, I think like Midnight Mass by Mike Flanagan is also just wildly ambitious beyond its own reach. And mm-hmm. in some ways, that mo- the movie Detention and that series are both failures. Um, and they're complete successes because of the ambition yep. of, of what they tried to honestly and genuinely achieve and present. And I, I love that. Like when I feel the expression of a soul genuinely striving, you know, to present an image, whatever that is, you know, I really feel it. I think that, you know, a counterpoint for me is like, when I think of Game of Thrones, I remember just like talking with people about it when it was on and saying like, you know, there's a scene, I forgot what season it is, but there's a character who gets his eyes like sort of pushed in by this giant. And um, I remember saying, you know, that was the moment for me when I knew it was a bad series and people were like, why? Cause it was gory. I was like, I am fine. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, I, you know, give, give me as much as you want. It's that was the moment when the series decided to stop doing anything about character and instead move towards um, getting us to want to see how people die in different ways. And I don't even necessarily object to that. I only object to its laziness. <laughs> it was just abs- it was just absolutely lazy at a certain point. And so when it took that turn, it started feeling immoral to me because I was like, I'm not, it's not the kill that is immoral. It's your laziness as writers that is actually like, especially wielding the amount of uh, energy and attentiveness that everybody's giving this right now as well. There is a movie I am obsessed with from the 70s that I have never been able to sit through again, nor have I been able to get anyone else to sit through it called Tourist Trap. Oh my I God, that's on it. my watch list. And did I put it there? I, uh, no, I, I heard about it completely different. I'll tell you how I feel about it when we watch it. Yeah. It is just utterly demented. There is no why this movie was made, how it was made. No, it's its own horror thing around it. But it goes back to it. It is so genuine. It is someone, whoever wrote it and directed it, we can all, we should look it up and give them credit in the notes, perhaps. Um, or I will send it to you. But, but it is such a genuine expression of like the demented part of someone's brain that you feel sickened when you watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's terrible. It makes no sense. It has no production values. It's like a $5 budget. It starts off with every cliche in every 70s horror movie, like sexy girls. And our car broke down, but we're so hot. Um, it's David Schmoller who directed Puppet Master, which is what people would maybe know a little bit more yes. by him. And yeah. it was a $350,000 budget. Are you fucking kidding me? I think that's high for that movie. Though. <laughs> <laughs> there are some good special effects, but they're practical effects. Um. <laughs> I would, lo- I would love to. I would love to. Uh, we should have a little movie club. I was also thinking of this oh my movie God, called yeah. The Pit, which is about this like bizarro Canadian kid who, like, basically falls in love with a psychotic teddy bear that tells him <laughs> to feed the people he loves and who love him to these. Uh, bog trolls that live in a pit 
while he becomes more and more sexually obsessed with older women. It's the craziest movie. <laughs> Do you guys know this movie, The Pit? It's, no. no. no it's just waiting for you. I want, actually, I want at least one example from you, um, Nathan, of just a batshit thing that you're like, wow, the ambition is what carries me through. Jeez, uh, I'm not ready for that one. <laughs> we'll come back to it. You might actually just have better taste than us, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> I that. I that. Uh, yeah. He's, he, yeah, I just imagine you coming up with something like it's called Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. Or <laughs> He's gonna have the classy answer. Come and see. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I do want to talk, um, at the end here a bit about writing in different genres um because in the instances that i've read of both of you crossing into other genres there's still a touch of a horror at least um you know nathan in the strange i mean what a crazy sci-fi western horror um and in (laughs) sarah in uh the book the most precious substance book collector, mystery, occult, witch horror, uh, erotic horror. I like that genre. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> book collector, witch, mystery, erotic horror. That's, I feel like I kind of own that. Yeah. There's a movie called Baba Yaga, um, this Italian new wave horror witch movie that is like the closest. That, but I think, yeah, you own it besides that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I want to talk about one, the way in which the horror follows you into the other works and also um, and also the ways in which those genres are horror genres as well. Um, I, I know that a question that people talk about when they talk about horror um, or they bring up a lot is like, well, what makes horror different than mystery? What makes it different than sci-fi? What makes it different? But actually, maybe you want to talk about why they're where they overlap and where they touch, because that's what you guys have done in in some ways is brought them together. Well, I think before we get into how they're similar, there's one really important way in which they're different. And I have to give credit to the person who gave me this idea, a horror producer named Stephen Schneider, who I've worked with before, who's a really interesting person. He also has a PhD in, I think, literary theory or film theory and is now produces horror movies. So he's a really interesting perspective. He pointed out to me, horror movies are the only genre defined by an emotion rather than a plot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that's very, very distinct about horror. And I guess comedy is the same definition. Pornography. Yeah. Yeah. Pornography too. Pornography, comedy, and horror have these, a lot of commonalities. They are, they are genres defined by an emotion rather than a plot. And they are Mm -hmm. things that one would, if they are succeeding, produce a spontaneous reaction in you that is both sort of physiological and emotional, a laugh, an orgasm, a scream or a jump. Um, So there is a weird thing there where they're not exactly genres, but of course we're Mm. talking about them as genres, but they are something a little bit different. Mm. Um, But I think for me, I've had a lot of like genuinely scary shit happen to me in my life. (laughs) Like again, speaking among like as one of the privileged people of the world who has been incredibly fortunate, I've never been homeless or hungry or in war. I grew up in a very high crime area. I grew up in New York City in the 70s and 80s. It was the 
one of the largest crime waves in American history, certainly of the modern era, the largest crime wave. Um, I lived in New York during 9-11. I lived in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. I had a couple good years after that. Then my parents got sick and my husband got sick and all have passed away. And that was fucking terrifying every step of the way. So I think that's always going to affect everything I do because I've been scared a lot in my life. I've had a lot of genuinely scary shit happen to me. It is that emotional thing rather than a genre thing. But as a genre, I think also where they overcome for me is in a more literary level, less about my personal life, suspense. Suspense for me is a key thing that ties all of my interests together. I, I don't know why, but I love experiencing it. I am a Hitchcock obsessive, you know, fan. And I love thrillers. Brian De Palma is one of my favorites, as I talk about all the time. But that feeling that is both excruciating and weirdly pleasurable, which again relates back to sex, to horror, to laughter, excruciating but pleasurable. Um, is for some reason something I go back to again that I want to both create and experience. Mm-hmm. And Connor, I've asked you this before, but I, we never remember quite what it was. I was a party at your house when you were in that house at Largemont, like a brunch party before you went to Ireland, like however many years ago that was. And you said something really, really interesting about the relationship between sex and horror. And I didn't remember exactly what it was. And I've asked you like 10 times since then and you never remember, but maybe this time <laughs> you will remember. Because I was like, oh, I got to write this shit down. And I didn't write it down and we both forgot. But it about was something sex- about how... About sex a, and horror, about pornography and horror. Maybe pornography and horror. Try me. Try okay. me. I, I mean, I don't remember. I'll come, I'll come, I'll come back to that. Because Yeah, I'll give my answer to my own question in a minute. Um, let me think about it. I've always had a complicated relationship with the word horror, especially the idea of horror as a genre. Um, I've, I've pushed back against it sometimes, embraced it sometimes. It depends what my day and what mood I'm in, uh, how I feel about it. Um, and I think it's because horror is a feeling and an element, not a genre itself, at least I think ideally. Um, I know it's, it is a genre, but I think that's where I, I buck up against it. Uh, I think, and the reason, so I, when I'm writing a story, I don't ever chase horror. I never sit down and think, I'm going to write a horror story. I just, I, I'll, I'll write the story this is in my head, which sometimes I'll think of as a fantasy or a dark fantasy. Sometimes I'll think of it as a science fiction story, as in the case of The Strange. Uh, in the case of the stories with lake monsters, I just thought of them as, as stories about people bumping up against the numinous or the supernatural and what that would do to their lives. The horror just comes, it kind of just flows in after it. It's part of the, because of how I think of the world, how I feel in the world mm. and react to it. It's the lens that I have, I guess. But, uh, but so the genre mixing comes, I think, just as an extension of that, um, not because I ever intend to mix genre with anything else or horror with anything else that is. Um, I'm reminded of a quote from uh, David Cronenberg, and I don't remember where I heard him say this. He's talking about how genre is meant to serve the story. The story is not meant to serve the genre. And I think when you have people saying, intending to sit down and write a horror story too often they fall into a trap of the story is serving the genre i've got to i've got to i've got to make this conform to this set of standards uh that we all agree makes a horror story and that's where i think that tends to fall apart or you get those clockwork mechanisms we were talking about earlier and uh and there's no life there's no energy to it and but if you just 
have your story and let the if there's going to be horror in it, it will seep up naturally. You know, mm-hmm. then then you get something stronger and more potent. That's the way I try to approach it. Yeah, I love that. I I think it <clears throat> I have some book in me somewhere really in the far reaches of my mind that is not a horror novel that is not violent. It's a, you know, it's actually, it's about love. It's very distant though. I can see it approaching very slowly, but mostly I can't, I can't even conceive of writing something without these, um, these companions that like these neighbors in my imagination, (laughs) you know, there's the Kafka quote, which is uh, we need books that affect us like a disaster that mm. grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we love more than ourselves, like a suicide. And then this is the part that everybody knows a book must be the ax for the frozen sea within us. That is my belief. And that's for me, I, I can't imagine writing something that wasn't doing that. Wasn't like the hatchet blow <laughs> um, to the, to what was, frozen in us um i think uh, and so for that reason it's like it's kind of a foregone conclusion for me almost much to the chagrin of my boyfriend who is the first person that hears every story you know he's like oh great is this one gonna be nice i'm like yeah it's about a kid who gets hit by a car you know like so uh remember reading one to him I was like, I wrote a story. He's like, what's it called? I'm like, it's called The Child Molester. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, that's since been retitled Tell Someone because they actually would not print it with that title, which was interesting. Um, in the oh, that's file. fascinating. God it was, forbid. It, they had a good reason, which is that molester has a like a dated kind of almost retro feel in Ireland yeah. that doesn't fit the darkness of the story that I was like, okay. I'll take that. Like, if it's just you're afraid to publish those words, I w- won't take it. But, you know. Um, but anyway, uh, so I think it's just kind of a foregone, like, conclusion for me that's just going to be there until this love novel arrives at, at some point. Who knows when that will strike me. Um, I think. I just, yeah. I always think the non-horrific novel is going to strike me. And it's never strikes me. <laughs> I'm just telling you that as a friend who's a little older than you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because I, you know I just read The Strange recently, Nathan, and it was like it was kind of like you just couldn't. It was kind of like you just couldn't get away from yourself. Is how That's I exactly felt. True. Yeah. That's exactly true. There was I had no intention of having any anything horrific be in that story because I was. Yeah, it is like it's like the perfect setup for like a young adult novel that's like becomes, you know, everybody's new kind of golden compass. And it still very well could do that, but it just then <laughs> these things kind of creep in and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, are. these yeah. <laughs> um I think that maybe the th- this probably is not the uh, sex and horror thing you were talking about, Sarah, but I'm going <laughs> to offer something anyway, which is that, um, you know, something about that I think about when we watch a horror movie and we watch pornography, there's so many similarities between the two genres. And in fact, they're 
completely entangled in, in the sense of regulation by law and social oh, wow. and cultural stigma. But one of the things that's really weird about both of them when we view them, they're the two kinds of movies that we say stuff to the screen when we're watching. <laughs> and I think it's, <laughs> you know, I mean, you probably wouldn't say don't go in there to a porn movie, but you would... <laughs> go in there you know you just say the opposite thing but you but are they just opposite yeah yeah but you do present you do project yourself into what you're watching and receive the physical responses of the people like you said which you don't really in comedy um you 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 might exclaim something while you're watching comedy, like oh my gosh you know but you wouldn't necessarily talk to uh what's happening that kind of intimate uh, partnership isn't struck up. And I think that that's um, indicative of the, <laughs> you know, some of the reasons why people are afraid of both genres, um, if they're, if they are in fact genres. Porn, I almost think, is its own kind of media uh, beyond yeah. or, or art form beyond just saying it's a subset of film. But it, because of that, I think it's like, um, we sense the power in both of them. Um, we sense the tremendous power in both and the ways in which they, what what they contain and what spills out over them. And so that that's something that's interesting. And I wonder if in, you know, you're the one probably out of the three of us here that's wrote something the closest to horror and erotica in the same work, Sarah. So I wonder if, in navigating the horrific parts of the book, the most precious substance and the erotic scenes, if you felt that kind of intimate entangling as you went. I wasn't really conscious of it when I was writing it. I wasn't thinking about the horror aspect of it really, um, or the sexual aspect of it really. That was really new to me. Writing about sex that explicitly was its own fear for me, certainly brought on its own fear. I think both of them can bring on feelings of fear and discomfort. I think the fear that that people have around sex is fascinating to me. It's terrible uh, that the terror they feel both at the desire and having the desire fulfilled. I think that's a strong connection. But also I'm really interested by what you just said about the language because it's really funny, but I also think it says something sort of, I don't know what, interesting, but I don't know what it means. If you're watching a pornography movie, it would be don't stop. Don't stop. Don't right. stop. If you're watching <laughs> right. a horror movie, it'd be stop, stop, yeah. stop. Don't go in the basement. Don't go here. Don't go there. No, go here. Go here. Do that. Mm. There's some weird uh, mirror image echo. I don't know what it all adds up to. There's something really interesting in what you just pointed out, but I don't know what it means at all. And just sort of seizing of the jouissance of it. Like the, I'm going to, I'm going to either like grab it and hold it so I can feel it more intensely, or I'm going to exas exasperate it um to feel it more intensely that was you know Susan yeah Tag wrote the what did she say i don't want to i don't want to satisfy my exi- my desires i want to no one does. exasperate them you know also they're interesting in both of them you have the experience of both whether consciously or unconsciously perhaps i don't know i don't watch a lot of pornography of both wanting the thing and being terrified of the thing but like yeah. i said i despite being not a big porn aficionado i do think in everyday life people are terrified of their desires even if they're ordinary desires to fucking kiss someone or whatever let alone yeah. the whole universe of weird shit that people 
can delight in and can have fun with. And it's the same with horror that you both want it and don't want it because people want that intensity of experience. I think that's another commonality, the intensity of the experience, the jouissance, as you said, but the jouissance is more the anticipation, I think, than the experience itself. You both Mm. want that incredibly intense pornographic scene, horror movie scene, and you absolutely 100% do not want the intense pornography scene or horror fiction scene <laughs> um they're both both desires and the thing you want and it's i've been thinking a lot about sex and relationship not to talk about my own work too much but the first line of my detective series is you don't hire a detective to solve your mysteries you hire a detective to prove that your mysteries cannot be solved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think there i'm just realizing that there is a sexual uh, analogy yeah. to that and the and the horror analogy to that you both do and do not want to be at a pornography film and a horror film mm-hmm. yeah i do at least <laughs> i don't know about you guys shouldn't speak for no, you no 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 <laughs> so and then you know just to bring it to nathan's quote of cronenberg i mean body horror is <laughs> like puberty writ large right and also i, I mean i i it's think that that large. what's that and aging writ large. And aging, yeah. yeah and right. being a woman. <laughs> being yeah, a, a cis woman, I should say, yeah. Yeah, and menopause and illness. Childbirth. And, yeah. <laughs> and and so many of those things have to do with our sexual image of ourselves as well. That, you know, yeah. if we're old, we're, no one's going to want to fuck us. If we're, you know, like uh, wh- the awkwardness of kissing somebody. And then also just like that weird thing where when you we're all talking right now and like there's like shit in our intestines and like spit in our mouths and mites running through our eyelids and you know all that kind of stuff great to meet you guys nice to see you you know it's like <laughs> like the way i joke about that is like on the other side of every hug is a butthole you know it's like every time you embrace somebody <laughs> like right there you know yeah um <laughs> <laughs> and yet we just go on with this illusory thing where we quarantine, you know, what we want to see and not see with um, clothing and what what parts need to be clothed are different from culture to culture, which is also really interesting and, and why we want to do that. I mean, also, like, so Nathan, it, you have this bald head that you're just showing off and, you know, my hair is thinning, so I wear a baseball cap all the time because I don't want to show off the thing that you feel like fine just hanging out with, you know? Um, and I think that that's all like, that's all so fascinating that the condition of uh, growing through materiality is also just absolutely horrific if you think about it. <laughs> and if you don't think about it, that's the idea. That's like what gay guys like, we find so attractive about straight men a lot of times, which is like something that I think a lot of straight women don't get, which is we're like, well, they just don't care about the world. They don't give a shit about anything. Like it's such (laughs) just like appealing thing that someone should not care about their appearance or how they look or how they sound or how stupid they might be or klutzy or, you know, whatever. Um, That ease is so attractive to people who are, constantly fidgeting and hiding and trying to mimic and mock and ape. I mean, it's interesting because what you said about like what's on the other side of the hug could speak to so many things. It can speak to, again, to comedy, to horror and to pornography. They're all kind of answering the question. What's uh, what's literally on the other side of the hug in terms of someone's asshole, but also what's on the other side of the hug. is like, what happens after we do that? 
like mm. after the nice moment, what what is the actual physical thing or the emotional thing that's going on here? But the sense of the other side that of being explored, there's something there for sure. Mm, another another border, another crossing of another another boundary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, all of those genres are also like sort of crossing the boundary into that. And then we, it's also like the defense against the consequences of our actions. The organic consequence of sex is childbirth, which mm. without modern technology mm. is like a murder rate of 30% for women or some crazy <laughs> shit like that. Like that's actually what fucking means for women most of the time is your life is going to turn into a horror movie, right? Either the guy's going to, I mean, look, I have fucked lots of people in my life has not become a horror movie. I was talking about this with someone the other day. If you search for like, literature on women and sex 90 percent of it is women who got murdered on tinder none of it is about the women who actually get murdered by their spouses by childbirth by the ordinary things that if you have the happy ending that you didn't go with the wrong guy on tinder you met someone and he was a banker and he was really nice and your family loved him that guy's a lot more likely to kill you statistically than a guy you beat in a bar for a one-night stand um, but, but the mm. sex and horror link, I think for women is quite material and real. And yet we're, we're kind of looking in the wrong places for it, maybe. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because sex itself might not be the site of horror. It's everything that does not support sex being a site of pleasure. That's yeah. where the horror comes in. Well, I, I'm thinking about a story you wrote. Nathan, but also something you said about it, which is a story, uh, I think it's called Sunbleached, about a, a vampire living in a, a yeah, so there's um, there's a vampire and a kid who have a relationship in this story. And what I heard you say about this story in particular was, you know, vampires are, we think of them as seductive. Um, they a lot of their power comes from their ability to seduce. So what happens when they lose that? Um, and in fact, some other a different kind of seduction happens through the the loss of power of one kind of seduction turns into the necessity to seduce in a new way. And I find right. that really interesting in relationship to some of the things we're talking about here. Yeah, it's uh, and in particular the 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 different. The way that played out in the story is, uh, you know, fulfilling someone's, you know, loneliness. In this kid's, in this in this example, you know, the kid's father had left his family, and uh, and so there was this this new hole in the family, uh, and he didn't know how to how to operate. Uh, he didn't know how to navigate the world. He's, he was a he was a uh, he's a teenager, a young teenager. And uh, and he needed what was gone, and so this this vampire who had been burned, which is why he couldn't seduce in the way that we typically think of that word. Uh, he was this he was this burnt thing living in the crawl space under this house, and so he was able to fulfill uh, that need of a of a of of a guiding hand of a of a male role model come in here and tell him, "Here's how the world is. Here's what works. I, I can I can help you become." something other than what you are uh, and and better and more and stronger than what you are. And the, the kid needed that. The kid needed someone to just help him navigate adolescence. Um, and that's, that's the seduction that was being played out then. And I think, you know, even when we're talking about uh, uh, sex and Tinder and all these other kinds of things, what, you know, the, the core need that we're looking for is 
the answer to loneliness. You know, yeah. some kind of some kind of uh, recognition and companionship, whether it's long term or short. Uh, just someone to pass the night with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's part of part of what you're saying with a with Thumbleach. There is like the monster. It's really interesting the way in which the monster completes us, and that's horrific. That in fact, you know, and we do all have a double, you know, um, a double sure. version of ourselves. And Naomi Klein has just written a very sort of materialist kind of political based, but still interesting book about doubles um, from that perspective. But we all have, you know, these kind of the doppelgangers or the shadows or however you want to mark that. But the monster a lot of times steps in to to finish us. And that is <laughs> that that's the horror is to be complete, which is the thing we say about our partners all the time. Oh, you complete me or, you know, I found the one, you know, now we we've come together and we've gotten married and we are one together or whatever the hell. And actually the condition of completeness is really terrifying. Hmm. This echoes, I think, what we were talking about before with this, you know, you're talking about the, the feeling the sort of the guilt and writing some of this uh, reckless, almost antagonistic fiction, not reckless, but antagonistic. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, I feel almost guilty even saying it out loud, you know, but there's the monster in us mm-hmm. that wants that expression. Right. And this is the this goes back to the, uh, you know, also the Barker's transcendence. You know, you transcend, you know, uh, into something monstrous but also something maybe maybe uh, better or higher or at least different. Wow. What a great place to end. Um, gosh, let's, let's hang out and talk about monsters and sex and desire <laughs> and brutality and loneliness and all that some other time because I want to do this again. <laughs> obviously so much energy here. There's a lot to say. And I'm just so appreciative for – this conversation and your writing. I mean, you guys are two of the greatest living writers. It's just an honor to talk with you both at the same time. I can't believe it. So thank you, Nathan Ballingrud and Sarah Grand. Yeah, very kind of you. Thanks for having me on. This has been fantastic. Thanks. Likewise, it feels like such a privilege to know both of you. And I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to talk to you today. Thank you both. And Connor, you are it is always such a pleasure to be on your show and uh, such a pleasure to consider you a friend. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Bye now. Bye.